Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Yes, indeed. Welcome in. It's Downtown, the podcast. Let's see, episode number 248. Oh, my goodness. Rich Kimball, Kerry Haskell here with you. Brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Well, it is a music-related podcast this week. We'll talk with a couple of talented music folks a little bit later on. The man behind a number of top 10 hits back in the 1970s for the Philadelphia soul group, The Stylistics, the unmistakable voice of the great Russell Tompkins Jr. And we'll catch up with him and and talk about how he got his start in the music business and riding high in the charts back in the 70s and what he's doing these days as well. Up first, though, a very talented singer, songwriter, guitarist, producer. He has uh, helped put together Grammy award-winning albums for a number of artists through the years and created a great catalog of his own music, including his latest incredibly personal and powerful album, All the Eye Can See. He's also these days a main resident as well. He and his wife uh, built a place down in Harpswell. We had a chance to catch up with Joe Henry to talk about uh, getting settled in as a as an adopted Mainer and the new album, All the Eye Can See. Here's Joe Henry on Downtown. Hey, Joe, uh, thanks for coming back on with us. Good to talk with you again. Nice to hear from you, Rich. I appreciate you reaching out. So uh, last time we talked with you, you had uh, just recently arrived here in Maine. Are you, uh, are you officially settled in now as a Mainer? I am. I mean, we, we moved into our house uh, finally that we were building in Harpswell in uh, late July uh, of 2021. So we've just, you know, just had our second Christmas in this house. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it still feels very new because we were in Los Angeles for so long, 31 years. But um, we are really enjoying it here. And I've traveled enough from here, you know, I've come and gone enough to realize um, I can still just do exactly what I need to do um, from here. I can I can come and go with ease. And um, that's helping me feel not only grounded here, but, you know, still connected to my, you know, to, to, to the greater world, even though I live out in the woods by the water. We were uh, talking about you. Your name came up in a conversation on the show a couple of months ago with your friend, Roseanne Cash, and, and she said, oh, yeah, it's beautiful uh, where Joe is. I, I've seen it, but it, it, she said it feels a little too remote for me. It would be remote for Rose, uh, no <laughs> doubt, because she, you know, she lives in, in a beautiful townhouse in Chelsea in New York City and has been there for a long time. And I know that that is, has really become home to her and has been for a long time. I mean, there are times, you know, I'll confess when, you know, as as new arrivals here still, you know, we can, my wife and I can both feel a little isolated or far from our uh, our beloved community um, that that we left in Los Angeles. But but more often than not, you know, we are really relishing, you know, the peace of this place, and you know how much how much we are really enjoying, you know, like if I've been out, uh, you know, on a project or playing shows or something to come back to just the incredible beauty and stillness that is Harpswell. And we've been so embraced by our, you know, enclave of neighbors here on this private road where we live. 
Uh, and that's made all the difference to us starting to feel like we actually live here. Well, the new it album. everything, as it turns out. Absolutely. Uh, the, the new album is so good. I've, I've been listening to it pretty much nonstop uh, for about a week now. All the eye can see uh, certainly was was impacted in the recording process, at least, by the pandemic and all we went through. But but how much of the, the content, the lyrical content of the album, uh, came from that time as well? Well, Rich, it's an interesting question, and, and I have different, you know, differing feelings about what it means um, to dissect that. Uh, I, I certainly wouldn't suggest for a moment that the the, the lyrical themes that 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 surface and then resurface throughout this particular record, you know, we're informed by what we've all been living through. Um, having said that, I, I I wouldn't suggest that this was in any way my pandemic album any more than I wanted anybody to think of the previous album as my cancer album. Mm. You know, I I certainly understand the relationship. Um, to, to what I've been experiencing personally and witnessing um, more broadly on behalf of all of us, you know, as being, you know, part of what is driving anything I'm doing creatively. But I always want to be cautious to, you know, inform or remind myself as I do any listener that, you know, where a song comes from is not where a song is. Just because right. you understand, <laughs> I say this to myself again, just because I understand you know, the moment that allowed a song to happen, you know, I don't think the song to be successful and to endure, we can continue to look at it as the song is, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a song on my, on this new album called Kitchen Door that I have said publicly, you know, did grow out of the loss of my dear mother uh, in May of 2020. But I don't think that that's all that that song is Um, not for anybody listening and, not even for me, but I do recognize that it grew out of that experience and that tremendous loss. Um, and I can't and won't pretend that that hasn't been a big driver. Is it hard, Joe, when you release your songs into the wild uh, to to understand that, that they may be interpreted in a different way uh, than you intended or in a different feeling that they, than they meant to you during the process of creation? Oh, no, that's not a problem for me. I, I, I assume that and I count on that. You know, I, I, I work very consciously to create songs that I hope are vivid enough in their detail and seductive enough in their atmosphere that people will be attracted to, you know, to them. But I, but I also want to leave enough doors and windows open in the house that each song is that would allow any listener to come and go through, you know, any, any open um, portal that they find and take mm. what they might. And, and, and uh, I know that songs can only be enduring and resonant for people if ultimately they can see themselves in there somewhere. You know, no one's going to carry a song of mine around in a very personal way um, just because this is what happened to Joe Henry. Um, I have to disappear from the song once I've created it. I mean, truly, for it, for it to endure as as the statement that I mean for it to be, as the 
as the invitational vehicle that I mean for it to be. And I hope that's not too abstract to talk of it that way. You know, I, I do want them to feel connecting and solid and load-bearing in their architecture, but I, 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 I relish when people have their own experiences with them and their own interpretations around them. That's, to me, that's, that's everything. As for the process itself, I understand uh, you kind of made it a mission to uh, learn how to master Pro Tools and then uh, reached out to some friends to see uh, what and, and if they might like to contribute to your songs. Well, mastery with Pro Tools um, is not something that I have achieved. <laughs> I'm, I'm still, you know, working incredibly naively and, and, and get a lot of help, most notably from my son, Levon, who is a gifted read player and a frequent collaborator, but also an excellent engineer, too. And he's taught me plenty. Um, but, you know, like they say, a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. I learned <laughs> just enough about Pro Tools early on in the pandemic to hear my voice and guitar return to me. And, you know, I've always sort of been that way. I, I, I'll grab something up, an instrument, and learn just enough to be in motion. And then I want to immediately start utilizing that to create songs, as opposed to the people who might spend months taking a class or reading manuals to understand actually, you know, mechanically, what you're doing there, I, I seem to want to keep myself, for better and worse, um, you know, in in that very instinctive space, which is great creatively, but sometimes can be very problematic technically. But, you know, suffice to say, Rich, I I, I kind of got away with murder. <laughs> you know, I I learned to do just enough that it allowed me to open the door to so many of my friends and peers, and I'm uh, so grateful for how generously they offered something to these songs. Well, and they contribute so beautifully to the album. I, I love the work that Danielle Lenoir did, though those two incredible instrumental pieces, one that opens the album and one that sets the stage for the album's closer, and they fit so perfectly. That was an incredible gift, you know. I I've known Daniel for a really long time. My wife was his manager for a dozen years, and you know I spent a lot of time in his proximity and learned a lot um, from observing and and understanding something about the way that he works. But I'd never myself opened the door to the possibility of us collaborating musically. Um, but as I was working on this batch of songs. Um, that song that I first imagined would open the album called um, Song That I Know, I sent it to Daniel and asked him if he might play pedal steel on it. I, I love his approach to that instrument. It's very unique, and I love the instrument itself. And a short while later, he reached back out to me and, and said, you know, I've been working on this playing pedal steel, as you asked, but I don't think I really came up with anything that contributed significantly to what you're doing already. But what I did instead was I created two versions of an instrumental piece based on your melody. And if they're useful to you, um, you're welcome to them. He said, I really, really love them. And I heard them and immediately was attracted to um, how inviting I found them. And I immediately imagined that since he gave me two different versions of it, that 
um, rather than pick between them, that I would use them, you know, both as a as an overture and in that penultimate spot as a kind of resetting of the table for the for the closing song. And and I think they add a lot of texture and atmosphere, mm. uh, especially as a point of entry. And I, I think they add to what I, I would call a very cinematic feel to the album. You know, hence me using the word overture, Rich. Mm. I, I think of every album as a movie. You know, I don't want to feel at the end of a project that it's merely a collection of songs. Um, that just feels like a compilation, and they may or may not feel like they have connective tissue between them. But I really strive to make an album that feels like a movie at the end of it, where if you've bothered to listen from the beginning to end as it's presented, you'll feel like you've written, you know, the arc of a narrative, even if it's an abstract one. You know, I always want it to feel, um, you know, like a singular experience. So it pleases me greatly if you if you hear that as as cinematic in some way, because that's that's always a goal. I always I'm I'm, I'm, I'm reaching for that as an as, as an analogy you know, um, as opposed to ever referencing other people's albums when I'm recording an album. I, I, I really avoid that. I don't think it offers much new perspective to anybody. But I reference film all the time because I, I love the the correlation between an album as a complete statement and a, and a movie as a complete statement. We're talking with Joe Henry about his new album, All the Eye Can See. And I love, it was interesting to hear you talk about that because I, I love listening to your album and, and any album the way we used to listen to them, which is to go in the order that the artist intended. How much, how much time and effort do you put into a selection of the order of the songs? Oh, I think about that significantly, Rich. And I've been asked many times, you know, as an artist and a record producer, you know, how do I feel about living in the age of iTunes and iPods and whatnot, where people can shuffle everything? And, you know, my response is, you know, we've never been able to control, once we let go of something, how people choose to listen. You know, when I was, you know, a teenager and listening, you know, exclusively off of vinyl, I would put the needle wherever I wanted. I'd listen to the same song, you know, for days at a time. Um, and, you know, I, I know that I can't be attached to how people engage with the work once it leaves my hands. But having said that, I believe that anybody who's willing to meet me or I'm asking to be met, you know, and listen to the whole thing in total, um, they should be rewarded with enough thought behind the construction of the whole album that, that, that there's an extra dimension to the experience if, if, if they go there. So in answer to your question, I spend a lot of time thinking about sequence. I understand that, that, that an album can be radically different just by reordering the song mm. and, and you know, there's a different point of entry. There's a different climax, um, by inference and, um, it's important, just like the album cover is important. Absolutely. Well, after that wonderful overture by uh, Daniel, a song that I know kicks things off, and it feels like uh, just a wonderful window uh, into the work and uh, the soul of a writer. Well, I, I, I appreciate hearing that. You know, I, uh, 
I mean, that always is the goal, Rich, but, you know, you never know. I have to ask about the song Karen Dalton. I understand you wrote it uh, driving through Nebraska. And now it's not, it's certainly not a biographical story. How would you describe that song? Well, it's one of those moments, and I've experienced it numerous times as a writer. You know, when I wrote in uh, on my album Scar back in whatever year that was, two, 2000, I think, when I wrote the song um, Richard Pryor Addresses a Tearful Nation, mm. I remember I was driving then, too, when that song began to unspool in my mind. And I was fairly deep into it before I understood when I was singing in first person as I, that I believed it was actually Richard Pryor speaking. I don't know how I understood that, but I embraced it fully once I had the notion, and it informed atmospherically how I proceeded. And in the same case with the song Karen Dalton, I was driving, my wife and I were in on our road trip from Los Angeles to Maine, and I was driving late in an evening through Nebraska with my wife asleep in the, in the passenger seat. And I started to hear this song um, or these lines that open the song, take root in my mind and somewhere very quickly. And I, and I, I don't exactly know why I believed that even though I was not telling her story, somehow I was, I was building something that felt resonant with the way that I feel about her biography being, you know, she was incredibly gifted. Her life was in, intensely turbulent and mm-hmm. troubled. And, you know, people have seemed to have no, you know, middle in response to her, you know, either they're sort of brushed back by her or have never heard of her or they're completely devoted to her incantations. But, I felt her spirit somehow in there and it felt right to, to honor her with the, you know, by titling the song after her, you know, I write a lot of things rich that I, I can't really account for. And I, at the end of the day, I say, I don't know what's going on, (laughs) but I believe it completely. There's just a vibration that I feel and I write something and I instinctively know that this is what I mean. Even if I can't, translate in different words for somebody asking exactly what I, you know, you know, what a song so-called means. Um, to me, it just means that it is, you know, it's like stepping out into, into any weather system and say, what does it mean? It's like this experience doesn't mean anything other than that I'm having it. And that might sound elusive. I'm sorry if it does, I don't mean to be, but that's how I experience it. Uh, the title track, All the Eye Can See, I understand that came to you during a walk. In the early days of the pandemic lockdown, after my touring went away like everybody else's, and I found myself in this deep engagement of learning to record myself at home and got excited about it, songs just sort of came to me in a, in a torrent Um and I frequently, and there's probably five songs on the record, perhaps, that happened by my taking a solitary early morning walk and beginning to hear a song in my mind and starting to sing it to myself as I walked. 
and then just r- repeating it over until I got home and could write it down and find on a guitar what chords might support the melody I was just singing. And because I was learning to record myself, I, I just immediately recorded a version of it, you know, while it, while it was that fresh and that immediate, as opposed to my old methods of sort of waiting till I had a full album's worth of songs, you know, fish in the boat before any thought about how I might articulate them as recordings. But these, I just engaged as soon as they appeared. And then I sent them off to somebody for a contribution. And then I would start another song. So it was a, 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 a an unusual and exciting kind of revolving door of songs that appeared and me trying to record them, you know, with the same immediacy that I wrote them. And all the I can see is, you know, an early example of of of, of that happening to me. You mentioned your son, uh, Levon Henry. He does wonderful work uh, on the album. I, uh, for me, uh, nowhere more beautiful than uh, what he does on the saxophone on Oh Beloved. Oh, I think that's that's pivotal. You know, I was writing that song, and, and that song in particular has a, you know, a had an unusual trajectory. I mean, as I hear it now as a finished song, I understand that that what I was attempting to do is, you know, address the divine, however you name God, the universe, creation, you know, whatever your relationship, if you have one, to, you know, to the divine spirit might be. You know, I was trying to address that that entity with the same you know, familial and conspiratorial ease that some of the great mystic poets did, you know, Rumi and, and Hafiz and, and, and Rilke, I put in the same category. Um, but having said that, the song itself grew out of a, uh, what was initially a long prose poem that I wrote um, at, at the death of Little Richard. So, you know, uh, of course, to me, um, going from something, you know, where I'm talking about Little Richard to becoming a song where I'm addressing God, um, that makes perfect sense to me. Absolutely. I, knowing uh, knowing what know, we know about uh, Richard Benjamin, yeah. You know, we have to. You know, he was a mystical and trans, transformative figure. Um, but, you know, back to Levon's contribution on that what that song became, I knew that small as it began with a single guitar in my hand that opens the song, I knew that that one needed to get kind of widescreen and I wanted to make it fully orchestral. And for that to be successful, you know, I needed Levon's voice on the saxophone to sort of, you know, fly away with it. And I, I really needed it to, to, to lift off there and become more expansive than it might just from, you know, my lyric and, and melody alone. Um, so I, I owe him a real debt there because I, I, I think he, he achieved something that, that was, you know, not only significant, but essential. Boy, the song that I keep going back to, it, it hits me so hard is uh, one that you wrote for the film, uh, Downtown Owl, that's an adaptation of friend of our show, uh, Chuck Klosterman's novel, and uh, Red Letter Day, 
it, it's so powerful and you know talks about that that most essential issue that we all grapple with as human beings i think yeah you know, how do we how do we live in the moment when we're all fully aware of the fact that the clock is always ticking well i appreciate that a lot i mean it was a great opportunity to be able to you know to write for that film and to be driven um you know by that invitation from t-bone burnett uh you know anytime i'm writing a song for a film there's always that balancing act of wanting it to feel deeply connected to the story and its characters, but without, you know, being, you know, putting, being too on the nose by referencing things particular to the, to the script or the, or, or the characters by name, you know, you want it to run like a, you know, like a parallel emotional experience that will help illuminate what's happening on screen. And yet I always feel it still has to have its own integrity and stand alone and on its own outside of the context of the film for it to really do its job. Because I understand that for it to really work in the film, people need to really hear the song and pay attention to the fact that it's there on purpose. But then they also need to be able to ignore it when the, action on screen is asking for their attention. So it, it really requires um, that the song, you know, be really focused, but I also have to let go, you know, as in regard to my own ego, and it's not difficult by the way, because I love film so much, but it really, I, I have to be really prepared and not only prepared, but I have to find myself desiring that I'm making something transparent enough that when people need to see through it or hear through it to, to what the film is doing, um, that it can both, you know, push forward as a song, but then sort of recede into the, you know, the role of score, which can be more subliminal. We, uh, we struggle, I, I think as a people with maintaining a sense of community and connection and, and social media uh, certainly adds some challenges to that, as did what we've experienced in the last couple of years. What role does music, what role does art in general play in building community? Oh, it's 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 a wonderful question, and it's um, there's not a small answer to that, Rich, because I happen to think that the you know you know perhaps the entire function you know of of all creative endeavor. I mean, art of every single discipline is is to connect us as human beings, each to others, and to understand so much more completely than we're pr prone to day to day. But there's much more that connects us than divides us. You know, I think songs in particular, and, you know, it's interesting that I, I've heard both Two friends of mine independently, T-Bone Burnett being one and the great Billy Bragg um, of England say to me at different points that music was, you know, was the original social media. You know, it's <laughs> the way we, we, we started to learn from each other and carry each other's stories around. And those stories then helped us not to feel alone because we, we could hear immediately that anything we were experiencing is 
mortal humans, um, no matter how dire, no matter no matter how isolated and alone we might feel in those moments of personal terror, that that we are in fact um, that there are other people experiencing the same thing in real time, and that there's that there's power in in aligning ourselves with a greater community. And frankly, I don't think music has a greater purpose than that. I don't think any. I don't think art has a greater purpose than that. Well, I, that makes some sense. It does indeed, and I will tell you, Joe, this album certainly is a wonderful example of that. These are obviously intensely personal songs, and yet uh, they touch that nerve. They speak to truths that that all of us can relate to. Well, you 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 encourage me and and affirm me by saying that, Rich, because it's it's something that I'm so aware of. It's 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 the it's my greatest desire, you know, as an artist. Um, you know, of course, we all like to do, you know, well professionally when we investing ourselves so deeply into something, and you know, with our time and energies. But beyond, you know, wanting to make a decent living and support my family, um, I've always been most primarily driven, you know, by by a, a need for the music to to connect. You know, not only my heart to yours, but hopefully your heart to your own mind. Uh, because I do think that, that that when songs are operating as they as they can and and do at their best, um, that's what's happening to us. The album is called "All the Eye Can See," the newest from Joe Henry. Joe, it's a great to catch up with you again. Thank you so much for making some time for us today, and I uh, hope you enjoy a, a beautiful spring not too many weeks away in Harpswell. It seems like it's it's at our threshold um, for sure, Rich, and I, and I thank you for this um, time and all your generous thought around the new album. I really do appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thank you again, Joe. Thank you, Rich. Well, what a great conversation with Joe Henry talking about his powerful new album, All the Eye Can See. Take a little break, a word from our friends at Cross Insurance. And when we come back, Russell Tompkins Jr. of the Stylistics, next on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. sound of Russell Tompkins Jr. and the stylistics. The great Philadelphia soul sound of the early 70s produced by the legendary Tom Bell. We had a chance to talk recently with Russell about uh, his start in the music business, the stylistics and more. Here's Russell Tompkins Jr. on Downtown. Russell, thank you so much for being with us. 
it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And and I don't know if you're a sports fan, but if you are, boy, the Eagles got uh, got it bad from the officials in that game. Uh, well, I'm a Cowboy fan. Oh my goodness! <laughs> How does that play in Philly? Uh, kind of rough sometimes. <laughs> Well, Russell, you have had uh, such an incredible career, and uh, music has, has always been a part of your life. You grew up in a musical family. Uh, your dad was a singer, right? Yes, he was. Yes. And you grew um, up You grew up listening to a, a whole lot of different influences, but I know uh, there was a lot of jazz in the house, and uh, I've always felt that uh, I, I hear a little bit of a, a Billy Eckstein influence there. Oh yes, uh, well that that was my father's favorite, and he became a, a one of mine. Uh, he played a lot of Billy Eckstein, and he sang a lot of Eckstein also. Um, whenever you, I hear his name, I, rem- I had a chance to meet him. I went to one of his last shows he ever done mm. in Atlantic City, and I got a chance to to sit in the dressing room and have a conversation with him and explain to him how I knew him, and uh, I was very surprised that he knew me. Oh, that's wonderful. When did you know? Now, you were singing a lot in glee clubs and at school. When did you know you had this uh, this amazing tenor voice and then the ability to, to hit that magical falsetto? Well, I sang naturally high uh, from elementary school all the way into the time I, w- I joined the, uh, the Philadelphia All-City Choir when I was in junior high school. But uh, I guess it was around... I don't know, going into, when I got going into high school, that I, my voice started to change. And I was be, becoming a baritone, and I still wanted to sing tenor. So uh, it just, all of a sudden, I would hear music and could make my voice go and do whatever I heard. I, you know, I would listen to Temptations. I would listen to Smokey Robinson. And I just had the ability to sound like them or even, you know, when I fell in love listening to Dionne Warwick's music and Morgana King, I used to look at all the TV shows that, you know, the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers type of things with uh, the sopranos singing in them. And uh, my voice, I just could do it. And uh, I, de- I began to develop that type of voice until I could make it my own identity. We have been fortunate to have uh, the great Dion Warwick on our show a couple of times, and I, I think I caught an interview where you said, uh, "Not a day goes by when you don't, at some point in the day, find yourself singing a Dion Warwick song." Oh, it's always going on in my mind. It's, it's ever since I was uh, a teenager, and uh, I listen to it. Uh, uh, you know, everyone has a certain music that they that they listen to. They might like a whole lot of different types of music, but there's always this one type of song or one type of person that when you're feeling sad or you're feeling happy that you like to put on. And uh, for me, it's her. Well, I know you love those songs, especially the collaboration she had with, with Burt Bacharach and Hal David. And we lost Burt Bacharach at 94 last week, and you had a chance to work quite a bit with Burt Bacharach as well. What was that experience like for you? Oh, that was that was a dream come true. That was a really, really wonderful. After working with Tommy Bell, working with him, you know, it, if I hadn't worked with Tommy Bell first or sang the Dionne Warwick songs all my life, I wouldn't have been able to work with Burt. But it was like 
everything I did before that was preparing me to to go in the studio and work with Burt Backrack. I think he felt that also. We're talking with Russell Tompkins Jr. here on downtown. So let me see if I've got the timeline right. You were in high school, Benjamin Franklin High School, and there were a couple of vocal groups there. You were in the Monarchs. There was a, a talent competition, and and you won. Uh, but eventually a teacher decided to take uh, the, the best members of both groups and turn it into what became the Stylistics. Uh, you're right. Uh, except for one thing, I didn't go to Benjamin Franklin. Oh, you didn't? Oh, okay. <laughs> no, every, I went to a, an agricultural school on the outskirts of Philadelphia, and all the other guys that were in the group, they went to Benjamin Franklin. Okay. Inclu- including, uh, but we lived in the same neighborhood. So whenever I would uh, get out of school, I would end up going down to Benjamin Franklin High School and hanging out with them and singing and uh, until we end up forming the stylistics and uh, the talent show was there and uh, a lot of the my management my first management was there also but uh i was there so much i might as well have <laughs> <laughs> and you had a plan and it wasn't necessarily to uh well it was to be in the music business but perhaps not as a singer i think i i remember reading that you had planned to repair musical instruments for a living that was a, a a further education plan. I uh, I had a, a guy in my classroom when I was in high school that was a year ahead of me, and uh, I really didn't know what I was going to do after high school. You know, uh, I didn't know if I was going to sing. I didn't know if I was going to go into service. I didn't. I, I really had no plan. I wasn't going on to further further. You know. Education. But he went to an, a vocational school that was in Philadelphia, and uh, he was studying to do musical instruments. And, I, you know, it hit me. That sounds like something I would like to do. And I went down, and uh, I took the test, and, 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 and I passed the test. And I, I went for about almost a year. This was a two-year course, and then you had to go into a six-year uh, apprenticeship. And for someone who was 17 years old, that seemed like a lifetime. Well, and it wasn't <laughs> long after that that you found yourself uh, on the R&B charts with a, a top 10 hit first time out with You're a Big Girl Now. Yeah, I, I, I started doing different jobs all over here in Philadelphia. But on the weekends, the same group, the Stylistics, we would work at nightclubs here in Philly. My my mother knew a guy who owned a uh one of the nightclubs here in Philly, and he gave us an audition. And uh, we went in there, and, and next thing I know, we were working there almost every weekend. And uh, some people here in Philadelphia came down and heard us at the club and uh, wanted to record us. And we went in and made a recording, and after that, I didn't think nothing else about it. We went, <laughs> I went right back to work, <laughs> kept on singing every weekend. And... Um, the management at that time said that he had an engagement for us up in uh, Newport, Rhode Island, but we would have to quit our jobs and quit going to school or whatever the rest of the guys were doing and go up there and work. We had, ma- had to make a decision would we do that. And uh, we did. We, we all decided that we would quit our jobs or whatever and go to Newport, Rhode Island and work. And during the two-week period that we were there, our friends and family came up to see us. 
And uh, they said, y'all got a hit record in Philadelphia. They're playing it all day long on all the radio stations. <laughs> and uh, that started everything off. The records uh, started to go uh, to New York, New Jersey, into Maryland, Delaware, and work just started to spread out. Spread out, and uh, AFCO Embassy Records wanted to pick us up to do a, a further recording. And... Uh, that's part of the history. Yeah, absolutely. How did you get together for the first time with Tom Bell? Um, the people at Africa Embassy said, I want you to be down at the Schubert Building on a Monday to meet this guy named Tom Bell, and uh, he's going to be your next producer. And uh, what a lot of people don't know is that the other guys in the stylistics didn't sing on any of the recordings that we recorded right. with Tom Bell, the first three albums. But it was just me. I went down there and I met Tommy. And uh, Linda Creed was there. And I had done a gig while we were the, uh, the Monarchs at a cabaret in Philadelphia in my last year in high school. And Linda was on that gig, so I had met her already. And uh, that broke the ice a little bit. You know, went in and started working with Tommy. And she was the lyricist and, and singing her songs and they were teaching me, and uh, we we really gelled. It seemed, you know, everything was like fate. And uh, very sad that we lost uh, both Tom and Linda in the past year. And then they were they were such a talented pair. The work they did uh, with you, but for so many other Philadelphia-based artists. Uh, yes, um, it's really a bad time this time right now because two months ago. The very first record I did, uh, You're a Big Girl Now, the producer of that, Leon Mitchell, he passed away. Mm. He was uh, he was in his 80s. And uh, then two months afterwards, Tommy Bell passes away. Tommy Bell was 79. And uh, then it's been another almost two months now, Bert passes away, and he's 94. And, you know, it's like... Wow, what's happening? All my mm. people are just going to the wayside. Very sad indeed. But, uh, they, yeah, it's very sad, but they all had, you know, I, w I wouldn't say they passed too soon because who knows what time you're supposed to go. But they all lived very wonderful, creative lives. No question about that. And uh, your work with them uh, took the stylistics to new heights. Uh, you are everything. Uh, just blew up across all formats, R&B, pop. Uh, that song was everywhere on the radio. Uh, yes. Uh, when I when I first went in the studio to uh, record with Tommy, I did Stop, Look, and Listen. And Stop, Look, and Listen really set it up. And then when You're Everything, it, you know, You're Everything put us, it started to push us and people started to hear us. And uh, the phenomenal thing about Tommy's music, it was a worldwide phenomenon. I mean, it was being mm. played everywhere. Did I read somewhere that uh, Betcha by Golly Wow is your favorite stylistic song to perform? Yes, it is. It's, it, it's always been my favorite since the first time I heard it. And uh, evidently, uh, to a lot of other artists, it's been done by about 16 different artists. My favorite other, you know, is uh, Phyllis Hyman. I love mm. to hear Phyllis Hyman sing Betcha by Golly Wow. And the other one is the jazz song 
the jazz artists seem to gravitate to is uh, people make the world go around. Oh, absolutely. But in the midst of all of this success uh, with records and, and radio and live appearances, uh, I remember very vividly seeing you and the stylistics on television, in particular, the Midnight Special. That had to be uh, that had to be fun, but I imagine, too, a little bit scary for a young guy. Oh, no. By that time, I was uh, I was starting to come into <laughs> knowing that I was a road musician. And knowing that you know being on being on the road was uh, was something that I knew of. I never depended on recordings. Your money is sketchy. Mm. You don't know what the record company is going to do. I've been very fortunate enough to work with a record company that's been kind of true to what uh, they said they would do when I was signed to recording. But by Midnight Special, I had done so many songs. I had traveled all over the country with James Brown and. Uh, you do get a little bit more jitters when you know the camera is on you. But once the, the music starts playing and you, you know, you, you hit that first couple of bars, a lot of that nervousness goes away. It, but, uh, nervousness is, is a good thing. I used to get really, really nervous. And I met Sammy Davis Jr. Once and I asked Sammy, I said, what can I do to get rid of this stage fright? He said, don't worry about it. In the long run, you'll be able to control it. Because stage fright only means that you care about what you're doing. Mm. Midnight Special, too, if I remember, was a little different than a lot of the shows at the time because you were actually singing live. It wasn't lip-synced. Yeah, it was like a gig. It had an audience out there, the stage, uh, except for the, if you took the cameras away, it would have just been another big gig. Is it so, true uh, that Midnight the... Uh, special, is it true that the record company didn't want to release You Make Me Feel Brand New as a single? Yes, that, that, that is true. Why? To this day, I don't know why. But uh, they had put out other songs before that, and uh, we liked You Make Me Feel Brand New, so we started to sing it. And uh, the people were going crazy over it, and we kept telling the record company and telling them and telling them, and uh, they finally listened and put it out. And uh, it became the biggest record that we ever made. You also had success uh, in Europe uh, as well, especially in the UK, a number one song in uh, the United Kingdom in 1975 with Can't Give You Anything. Yes, yes. Um, Can't Give You Anything was a, a departure from the type of love songs and things that we had been doing. And uh, it was a sample of things to come for Van McCoy. Absolutely. Who uh, uh, had the yeah, hustle and uh, to it, <laughs> if you listen to that song and listen to "Do the Hustle," it's almost like the same type of uh, type of music. You know, that it's, it's a Van McCoy song, and it worked good for us, and it worked phenomenally <laughs> for him. Mm. Uh, you eventually left the stylistics and went out on your own. You, uh, among other things, I understand, learned to play the piano. Uh, released a, a wonderful solo album uh, in 02, A Matter of Style, and then put together a brand new group, The New Stylistics. Can you tell us about them? Uh, well, they're guys, you know, this is still homebred. They're, uh, one of the guys was in The Stylistics from 1982 to about 93, 94. 
He's from the neighborhood. He sings with me now in the new stylistics. And another guy that was in a group that uh, that I had managed for a while back then from my neighborhood, he's in the group. We had uh, four members, and uh, he one of the guys retired not too long ago. And he I grew up with him also, James Ranton. And um, when I when I left the group, I had no idea that. I was going to be singing anymore. It was I was totally burnt out. I was burnt out mentally, physically, and uh, so when I left there, I just couldn't do nothing. So I went back to school. I went to music school, and a friend of mine who worked for uh, the record company that the last record company I was with, Amherst Records, he wanted me to uh, do record a song that he had. And at first, I didn't want to do it. And uh, he said, look, I'll tell you what I do. I'll buy you the equipment you put in your house. I'll send you the tracks, and you can record it anytime you want to. And uh, that ended up being 16 songs. So that's how the, the Matter of Style album came out. But uh, when the Matter of Style album came out, I had to do promotion on it. And and a lot of the guys that are in the group right now kept coming to me to form a new group. So uh, I just said yes, and this is the 20th year that we've been together as the new stylistic. Well, you sound great. A new album, well, relatively new album, you released a couple of years ago, Between Love Songs. has got some terrific music on that. I caught uh, a clip last night. I was uh, on the Internet and caught a clip of you singing Don't Worry Baby uh, with Brian Wilson and his group, and, man, you sounded great on that. Oh, we had a good time. I loved them guys. You know, uh, when I was talking when I was younger and I was trying to learn how to sing falsetto and things, the Beach Boys were hot. And I loved the Beach Boys. I, I mean, I was crazy about the two 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 uh, white groups that I was crazy about back then was the Beach Boys and Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons. And I said to myself, I can sing them songs. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> I remember it was crazy, but when I heard that I was going to sing with Brian Wilson, I was in I was here practicing in the house uh, the songs that I was going to sing with him. And I, while I was playing them, my wife said, "You know that guy sounds an awful, awful lot like you." <laughs> I said, "No, it's the it's the other way around. I sound an awful lot like him." Brian Wilson had a phenomenal tenor back then, and. Uh, that was a great show, working with them. And uh, when they come back east, I hope I can get a chance to do it again with them. Well, I think your wife is right, because I don't think anybody sounds like you, Russell. One of the most original and recognizable voices in music, Russell Tompkins, Jr. I have enjoyed your work since uh, the very beginning of the stylistics, and, and right up to now, it's great to have the chance to talk with you, and so happy that you're out there continuing to make wonderful music. Oh, thank you so much need to talk to somebody up there where you at to uh, see if they want to bring us up there and do a little singing with, uh, for y'all. I would love to come up there. I've been everywhere all over the country except for where you are, except for in Maine. Well, we'd love to have you up here. No question about that. We'll see if we can get the wheels turning on that. In the meantime, Russell, thank you so much for visiting with us today, and I, I wish you uh, much good health and continued success. It's been my pleasure, and thank you so much for having me again. What a fun conversation. Russell Tompkins, Jr., the new stylistics out and on the road. Check them out if they're coming to a, a city near you. Our thanks to Russell. Thanks to the great Joe Henry. 
and to you for joining us this week on the podcast. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time here on Downtown.